Hear now God's word from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, whom you also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. As the Apostle Paul expands on his powerful point regarding our identity in Christ, we saw last week uh, how we went from being strangers and foreigners to being instead fellow citizens with the saints in the kingdom of God. God took all of our human divisions and in Christ he, he uh, and in Christ and by the Spirit he has brought us together. He has made us one. In fact, he has given us complete access to himself. He took a bunch of equally helpless sinners. 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. He came and he took these two unreconciled parties, God and us, and, and by his work and by his labor, he brought us to God. He is the way. He's the truth. He is the life. And no one comes to the Father but by him. He is the only one who can bring unity, community, or communion to fallen humanity. We now enter into a communion of love with the triune God and with one another. We're citizens of the same kingdom with the same king. We're members of the same household, children with the same father. We also share the same enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we now bear one another's burdens. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. Moreover, we are now marching to Zion together. It doesn't matter anymore what we look like or where we came from. It doesn't matter what race we are or how much money we have or what positions we hold. Our unity, our identity is found in our Savior and in Him alone. We all come to occupy this new and glorious position in Christ But now we come to look at the other two images that Paul gives us in this passage, which will expand expand on and develop our understanding of what the triune God has done for us. Do you remember Paul's prayer in chapter 1? It would be good to go back and review that whole prayer, but just to recite part of it from chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, he said, I'm praying for you Christians, you in Ephesus, That the eyes of your understanding will be enlightened. It's amazing how we assume, like little children do so often, that they know everything they need to know and they understand everything. The famous uh, repeated rejoinder of a child is, I know. I know. But you know, that's what we do too. We assume we know. But Paul understands and we need to understand that we don't understand. That we need a deeper understanding than we have. And so he prays that we will have our understanding enlightened. That you may know what is the hope of his calling. Do you know that? 
really. It drives you. It sustains you. It enables you to face whatever you're facing right now because you know what is the hope of your calling or His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe? Do you understand that? Do you understand the depth of that? I think we often don't. And I think we actually suffer the effects of not understanding that the way we should every day in our relationships and just in living our lives. So our second image that Paul gives us is that of a household. To be part of a family is far more intimate than simply being the citizen of a kingdom. It is personal. It is powerful. It involves a father and his children, adopted and received from all over the world year after year. This is a big family. This is the family of all families. It turns out that water is thicker than blood, the water of baptism. As citizens, we are acquainted with people only in the most casual way. We really don't know them. We go to the store, we see people, we might be friendly, we might not speak to them at all. We may say hello, Uh, somebody drops something, we might stop and pick it up. There's some relationship there of those who live in our community, but it's distant. But in the household, things become personal very quickly. Here in the church is where we rub elbows, or we might say where we butt heads with our brothers and our sisters. We eat together, we work together, we are shaped together. This is where love gets tested and demonstrated. And thus Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another, and by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, it would have been really remarkable if God had simply pitied us, saved us from hell, and uh, took us out uh, of the dump and gave us food. That would be remarkable. But he goes way further than that. He adopts us into his family. He makes us children, not just any old children, but children of the king. We have a beautiful picture of this in the story of the prodigal son. The broken son who finally goes back to the father, he says this to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And before the son can get to the part that he had rehearsed in his prepared speech where he was going to say, and make me like one of your servants, the father interrupts. And he says to the servants, bring out the best robe. And put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again and he was lost and found and so they began to be merry. No son, you're coming all the way home. That's what God does. When he saves us. This isn't just regular grace. This is marvelous grace. This is amazing grace. 
Now we must remember that this is only possible in Christ. There is no other way to the Father but by Him. Through the years, many have taught this false idea of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. You may have heard it referred to as fogbomb, which I like that term because it has a hokey sound to it because it's a false doctrine. For example, masonry teaches that there is one God and men of all religions worship that one God using a variety of different names. This is a popular notion in our country. Our coins say, in God we trust, right? Our money says, in God we trust. But I want to know which God. There is only one true God, and He has a Son named Jesus Christ. You remember that Paul has already reminded the Gentiles that when they were without Christ, they were also without hope in the world. They were hopeless. You cannot be in the family of God apart from Christ. Jesus spoke of another father in John 8:44. He said, "You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your fa- and the desires of your father you want to do." This is, of course, why we pray in the name of Jesus. Remember what Jesus said, "Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me." You who practice lawlessness. And so not only do we have the privileges of citizens, we have the privileges of family. God isn't just your king, he's your father. You can go to him at any time. For through him we have access by the Spirit to one father. Again, the words of Jesus, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and to your God. And John opens his gospel with this amazing declaration, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become the children of God. And again, beloved, we are now, now we are children of God, John writes. Dr. Lloyd-Jones describes it this way. The God who made everything out of nothing, and to whom all the stars and the constellations are but as marbles to a child. The God who controls all things, that all things that are, and who is from eternity to eternity, to whom the very nations are but the small dust of the balance. He is your Father and my Father. And there is nothing, however small, and trivial in your life and in mine, but he is interested in it, and, as it were, is prepared to allow the whole universe to go on by its own momentum for the moment while he is listening to you and giving you his undivided attention. That is what this doctrine means. He is more than intimately equated with you. He knows how many hairs on your head. He is also intimately interested in you, knowing the things that you have need of before you ask. Not only do we have Him as our Father, but we are also related to His Son. Romans tells us that He is the firstborn among many brethren. We all, Jesus and you, Jesus and us, we have the same Father. In addition, We have this older brother who sympathizes with us and who intercedes for us. 
And of course, it doesn't stop there. Romans 8, 16 and 17, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons, the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Do you understand what it means to be an heir of God? Let me answer that for you. Of course you don't. But you can begin to contemplate what it means. Way beyond being citizens of a kingdom, you are children who have the family spirit. Galatians 4, 6-7, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So that's the second image. We read now, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. The idea of a household points to this other image, that of a house. The church is a temple. It is the dwelling place of God. This is an image that God has used throughout Scripture. The difference here is that the temple is now living. It has been carefully designed by the chief architect, and its its plan is now being executed by the chief builder. Hebrews 11, 8-10, For by faith Abraham obeyed, when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and when he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with whom of the, the heirs with, with him of the same promise, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. You see, this temple is as big as a great city. This is a temple that is being fitted together, being fitted together right now. It's a growing temple. This is a massive project. Now, the chief cornerstone is Jesus himself. And you know a cornerstone uh, is it's a foundation stone, and its concept is derived from that first stone that is very carefully hewn to be square and plumb and level. And it's set down and everything, all the measurements are taken from there. And it is the reference point for the rest of the building. It will determine the position of the rest of the structure. And so the Apostle Peter expands on this same image. When he says, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, referring to Jesus, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. 
But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. When Jesus questioned Peter at Caesarea Philippi, Peter made this confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. This rock that Jesus is the Son of God. Now the apostles, starting with the chief cornerstone, laid the rest of the foundation. Paul writes, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given me, a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can one lay than that which is laid, which is, Christ, which is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, 9-11. So the apostles are now given to the church after Jesus ascends. And they're now going with this chief cornerstone, and they begin to build on that, to lay further foundation. He continues to describe how that work is done, and he concludes with these words in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. When the church falls into division, they are destroying the work of unity that God has called us to. So at Corinth we had this. Each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So Paul chastises the Corinthians for these divisions they're having because they've forgotten these fundamental truths. And so after Jesus ascends, he gives gifts to the church. And in in a similar image, that of a body, this time instead of a building, we read in Ephesians 4, He himself gave some to be apostles and some prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying or building up of the body of Christ. And so the apostles and the prophets are the Bible. That's the foundation, the foundation of the church. Paul makes this point when he writes to Timothy. I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, I gave some of you who came before Sunday school started a little heads up inside your order of worship in a photograph of the Cathedral of the Plains. Marinelle and I and the kids many years ago had the occasion to visit this on the plains of Kansas. It's one of those images you can see about 10 to 15 miles off from the horizon on the flat plains. There's this church that's rising up, that along with a silo in some small community, the two centers of those communities. And it's an impress. We stopped and looked and read the story, and I want to tell you the story of this cathedral. And it's to illustrate what we're saying about God building a building, and we're the stones, and what he's accomplishing. In this particular case, uh, it said that, uh, and we're talking about uh, around eight, uh, 1908, 
Every uh, man's being interviewed who was a little boy at the time, and he's telling about this. Every man in the parish over 12 years of age was assessed $45 and required to haul six loads of stone and four loads of sand each year until the church was built. Basically, they entered this covenant. Uh, If you want to be part of this, then here's, here's your share. The man's name is Dinkle. Dinkle said his family met this obligation, but it was difficult. As an example of the value of of a dollar in those days, he said his father had an 80-acre homestead and was in the midst of planting wheat when he heard of a construction job available on the Union Pacific uh, in Salina, 100 miles to the east. He gave his wife instructions on planting and harrowing the rest of the wheat, and he started to walk toward Salina. He could have traveled by railroad, but the train fare would have been about a dollar. And he walked a hundred miles to save the money. Construction began in 1908. During the three years it took to build the church, said Dinkle, our family brought in 65 loads of rock, limestone, and about as many loads of sand We would make two trips a day, sometimes three on those days when it was our turn. We haul the rock all year round when the weather permitted. Ask about where the limestone came from. Dinkle said most of it was found in layers from three to four feet underground along the banks of Big Creek, seven to eight miles south of Victoria. That's where this cathedral is. Using scrapers and teams of horses, the workers would clear large slabs of the rock. They didn't have any power equipment, said Dinkle. It was a painful job. Men would bore holes in the limestone with hand drills. The holes were drilled 10 to 14 inches apart, and then other workers using small steel wedges would split the rocks into pieces 8 to 12 inches in width and 8 or 9 feet long. These were small enough to handle. They would be loaded on the wagons and carried into town and piled on the ground at the church site. After the church was constructed, engineers estimated that parishioners had hauled more than 125,000 cubic feet of stone on their flatbed wagons from the quarries south of Victoria. Holding it in his uh, powerful-looking hands, Dinkle said, this is what the masons used. He had a, a chisel, hand chisel, to trim the rocks once we delivered them to the church. It's a stone hammer. We found it under the present church in 1971, and and they thought I'd like to have it. The actual construction of the church was a slow process. Masons hired by the construction company split the rocks at the building site into 18 to 30-inch lengths, after which the stones were dressed by hand. The stonemasons, using steel chisels, would smooth two sides and the ends of the stone and trim them to very specific specifications. Each stone took a mason from 40 to 60 minutes with cornerstones and other pieces taking even more time. Later, when the walls reached a greater height, a block and tackle hoist was built and it was operated by a horse brought in by one of the parishioners from a nearby farm. Well, I'm telling that story to say this is a glory. If you're ever there to go see it, it's worth going to see and It's amazing. But the Cathedral of the Plains is nothing. 
compared to the temple that Paul is describing. For one thing, most of you are a lot harder than sandstone. God has been assembling these living stones from around the world for thousands of years. You are one of those stones. You are part of the master plan. He has selected and hewn you for a particular role. To occupy a particular place, an important place, but not an all-important place. Isaiah said, listen to me, you who follow after righteousness. You who seek the Lord. Now he's speaking on behalf of the Lord. So when he says, listen to me, he says, listen to God. You who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you are hewn and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. God took each one of us. He is shaping us. He is working on us. He is putting us into this living temple where He dwells. This is not just any building. It's a holy temple. It's not one of the seven wonders of the world. It is the wonder of the world. And we're part of it. Let's pray. May your church recognize that it is this holy temple in the Lord. Composed of living stones and built into a spiritual house. May it clearly be seen as that holy temple by those who observe your church. And may it manifest the marks of a true church. May we see even today the great mercy and grace you've shown us by making us part of your household. And may this truth be ever before us. May your church today be alive and growing for your glory. Show your church in our day that there is one God and one Bible and one people of God and one way of salvation. Protect your church from doctrines that would break down these great truths. Use these truths to make us more zealous to proclaim the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Not only are you part of the great temple called the church, you are a temple. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. You are a new kind of human. You have been made new, and as a result, what you do and say are different. How you relate to others is different. If you say to yourself, I don't notice any difference, then you should be alarmed. If you're a child of God, then everything must be different. Ephesians 5, 15-21, See then... See to it then that you walk circumspectly, 
not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. What we're about to do as we come to the Lord's table is a snapshot of that. We're going to sing with our mouths and also with our hearts. And we're going to sing to one another. And we're going to sing to God and before God. And we are going to exude the Spirit of God in so doing. And we are going to give thanks to God in the name of Jesus. And we're going to submit to one another. That's communion. Coming together in that union. Brother and sister in Him. So this loving communion is about to be expressed in this image we call the Lord's table, but it doesn't stop there. This snapshot, this pause, this picture is to remind us to go out the doors and do it at our house and do it Monday through Saturday and come back tomorrow and look at the picture again. Keep looking at that picture. Keep looking at what God's called us to and go do it. Don't be the person that looks in the mirror and then forgets walks out the door, and that's behind us now. This image is to be burned into our minds, in our hearts, our memories. This table of communion, this table of thanksgiving. Father, help us to love your church even as you loved her, and to never despise your bride. May we, by our love and devotion, be found in the service of your church all the days of our lives as devoted members of your household. May we, as the church, as the bride of Christ, live in submission to him who loved us and gave himself for us, him who is our head. May his work of sanctification in us be easy, as we joyfully remember our baptisms and adoption, and are daily blessed by your word in the communion of saints. Lord, we long for that day when we shall be presented a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, holy and without blemish. Help us, Lord, to see your church as glorious as she is. And indeed, help us to adorn her with our lives. May we, the church, be holy, separate from the world, for we are members of your body and of your flesh and of your bones. It is you, Lord, that adds to your church. And it is you, Father, that put all things under Christ's feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And now, O Lord, our God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now your manifold wisdom might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which you accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him, we pledge ourselves to you, one people, one church, forever and ever. Bless now our feast, our fellowship, our rest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy 
To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, now and forever. Amen.